And now the news from Zarahemla, a small town in southern Utah. Bishop Todd Jenkins was up early this morning. Todd had been a bishop for slightly over five years now, and he knew that five years was the customary time span for such a calling in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So he expected that any day now the stake presidency would call him in to thank him and release him. The thought of having such a weight lifted from his shoulders made him giddy, but at the same time a balloon of sorrow filled his chest when he thought of no longer having the sustaining experience of serving his flock. This morning's act of service would be a new experience for him, and most likely a last. While he had presided over many funerals, this would be his first marriage. Todd had spent his years as a bishop encouraging the single members of his ward to work toward temple weddings, and while till death do us part weddings were certainly not uncommon in the church, this was the first to take place in Zarahemla during his term. The shy and often awkward Howard C. Howard, owner of the Zarahemla Diner, a faithful Mormon, had won the heart of Rosara Little, a widow and a devoted Catholic. Todd had interviewed the couple five months ago and asked them about any concerns they might have about a split-faith home. They confessed that they didn't know what all of the stumbling blocks would be, but said that they both had a lot of love to give and they wanted to give it to each other. Todd was moved by their unpretentious faith in God and each other. He felt sure that they had every chance of growing in their love and respect for one another. While he naturally hoped that Rosa would gain the same testimony of God's plan that he and Howard shared, this union felt right, and he told them so. Rosa had expressed her concern about how living with Howard's mother would affect their new lives together, but Howard surprised her right there in front of the bishop by announcing that Howard's sister Melissa had agreed to take Mom. And Mom was fine with that. She would be moving to Phoenix right after the wedding. The drier climate and lower elevation would be better for her. Following the interview, Howard astonished Rosa further by turning down a street that didn't lead to the diner and then pulling to a stop in front of a construction lot where a new home was being built. It was to be theirs, he explained. Howard loved the home he grew up in, but after all, it belonged to Mom, and she could use the money from the sale of it. So he chose to build a new home for his new family. Rosa could see that it would have a large porch, something she had always dreamed of, and a large kitchen, something she had always longed for, a master bedroom with his and her bathrooms, a spacious family room, a den or office, a laundry room, and bedrooms upstairs for the girls. Though he seemed to have gone overboard with bedrooms upstairs, there were two extra. When she asked Howard about it, he just blushed and showed her where they were to build the back deck and garden space. As Rachel Jenkins straightened her husband Todd's tie, she said, You'll do fine, my love. The ceremony part is simple, and you'll know just the right words of counsel to give them when you see their glowing faces. She was hurrying out the door and leaving him to wrangle their four kids. Rachel had made sure they had all washed and had laid out their clothes for them, 
but she needed to get to the church to touch up the decorations and set up the refreshments for the wedding, so it would be up to Todd to make sure the kids got into their clothes, brushed their hair, brushed their teeth, ate their breakfast, brushed their teeth again, and looked presentable before he herded them into the minivan and got them to the chapel. It was mornings like this that made him appreciate Rachel all the more for what she did every day to support their family. Rachel felt that she could claim some credit for this marriage. She wasn't really the matchmaker. Howard had hired Rosa as a waitress long before Rachel had gotten to know her. But because it seemed like such a good match, Rachel had urged the budding relationship along by inviting them both to group get-togethers. One day, when Rachel was eating at the diner, she asked for Rosa to be her waitress. When Rosa came to the table, Rachel shared some amusing story with her, and then, as they were laughing together, Rachel pointedly looked over at Howard to make sure that Howard thought they were talking about him. That method almost backfired, though. Instead of Howard being flattered that he was the topic of conversation among the women, he became paranoid that the women were laughing at him, and he shut down for a few days, interacting as little as possible with Rosa. So, Rachel went back to her junior high school tactics— found a quiet moment with each of them, separately, and told each of them that the one had a crush on the other. It worked. Howard gained courage when he saw what seemed to be flirtatious glances from Rosa and asked her out again. They had gone to the county fair dance together a few months before, but Howard found Rosa's responses to him that night rather enigmatic, so he wasn't sure she had enjoyed herself. He pulled his head back in its shell and focused once again on his mother and his work. When Howard finally asked her out the second time, it was to a potluck social at his church. He was to bring a dessert. He had a case or two of pumpkin left over from the fall season, so he decided to make his famous pumpkin pies, something his customers always raved over as a seasonal favorite. When Rosa came back to meet him at the diner for their date, he insisted that she taste his creation before they left for the social. She took a small bite and winced as she swallowed. In his excitement, Howard had forgotten to put any sugar in the pies. Howard was mortified, but Rosa couldn't stop a giggle that then turned into a full-scale guffaw. Howard couldn't help laughing either. They laughed so hard they began knocking utensils on the floor. Howard then almost did something completely impulsive and out of character. He picked up one of the ruined pies and playfully threatened to push it into Rosa's face. But Rosa, never afraid of a good fight, didn't hesitate. Before Howard could carry out his threat, she pushed the pie back at him and smeared it all over his face. Howard shook his head in surprise, splattering unsweetened pumpkin mixture all over Rosa's dress. They laughed some more. All awkwardness and nervousness was gone. Given the state of their clothing, they decided to stay at the diner and work together to remake the pies. Their friends at the social would suffer without his pumpkin delicacy, but the diner customers would love the out-of-season dessert option the next day. Sadie Young was just finishing the piping on her wedding cake creation. 
Sadie had started dabbling with baking cakes and decorating a few years ago after she started watching Cake Boss on TV. Her first creations were disasters, as her husband Ivan will attest, but she didn't give up. She soon began bringing cakes and cupcakes to neighborhood parties and dinner parties. Her creations then started to get very complex, ridiculously so. She got caught up in trying to outdo her cake's adornments each time, until finally, when walking into a book club gathering one night, she noticed three of her friends chortle when they saw her cake. She came to the realization that the flavor of the cake was most important, and the decoration should support the presentation of such a culinary gift, not overwhelm it. From then on, she adopted the motto of beautifully simple and tasty in her craftsmanship. Rosa Little liked the simplicity of Sadie's designs and asked her if she would make Rosa's wedding cake. Sadie was so honored and nervous. This she had to get right. And she wanted to be sure to have enough to go around. Howard had a brother and sister that would be attending the wedding, along with their mother, but he had always been a bit reclusive. He was liked, but not well known by the townspeople. Most people in town knew Rosa. She had become the face of Howard's diner, and most residents ate there at least a couple of times a month. And some Zara Hamlins ate there every day. Rosa didn't have any family, except a sister from which she was estranged. But most everyone in town wanted to be at her wedding. That put the pressure on. Sadie calculated that in addition to the four-layer cake that she had designed, she would have to create 300 cupcakes. It seemed a daunting task, so she asked a newfound friend, Sam, if she would help. Sam was a new backup driver for Ivan's UPS route. Ivan was getting ready to retire from UPS and had been training Sam to take over. Sam was highly intelligent, and so the training part was taken care of in a hurry. The last few training runs had turned into, Why don't you take it today, Sam? You've got this. Leaving Ivan time to go fishing up at Panguitch Lake or golfing over in Cedar City. Sadie was happy that Ivan would be able to retire with a pension at 55, but she would insist that he get another job, partly because they could use an additional income, but mostly to keep Ivan productive. He would do nothing but hunt, fish, and ride four-wheelers if she didn't keep him focused. Sam was a bit of an enigma. Samantha Johns was her name, a strikingly beautiful woman in her early thirties. She seemed to have all the money she needed, so why she was driving a UPS truck was a mystery. She had lived in the area for quite a while. Sadie remembers seeing her at church a couple of times, but had never been able to strike up more than a four-sentence conversation with her. Sadie knew that Sam was the widow of the famous local painter Jacob Johns. Jacob had married this young beauty late in life and had died less than two years ago, but how that came about, or what kind of woman Sam is, Sadie could only guess. But she didn't want to guess. Gossip always flies over these kind of things, and Sadie didn't want to be a part of it. She had heard people refer to Sam as a gold digger, someone that had thrown herself at a lonely old man in order to get his fortune. But Sadie wouldn't assume such a thing. There might be a great romantic story behind it all, and she wanted to hear it from the source. Besides, so far, Sam was a delight to be around. 
She was unpretentious, charming, funny, and had a twinkle in her eye, seemed to love life and learning, and she had a wonderful eye for composition, even in something as simple as the decoration and layout of the cupcakes for the wedding. Sam also had a knack for cooking and baking, and so Sadie was pleased with the help that Sam provided. The cake was done. Sadie was second-guessing herself about the final decorative touches and wished that Sam were still around for an opinion. But Sam had already left with Sadie's brother Noah to deliver and arrange the cupcakes in the cultural hall of the church. They would return shortly to pick up the cake. Noah was Sadie's older brother who lived with her. Noah would always live with her, or at least that was the plan. Noah was born in 1961 over in Montezuma County, Colorado. A nurse had turned away to deal with other patients and didn't notice the signs of a prolapsed umbilical cord. Sadie's mother, Nancy, knew she was having some stress, but assumed it was a normal part of the birth process. When the nurse checked back, she was concerned by Nancy's elevated heart rate. Electronic fetal monitors were not a thing yet. The nurse examined Nancy and discovered that the umbilical cord was coming down ahead of the baby. She called in the doctor immediately, and he called for a C-section. Unfortunately, the damage had been done. Little Noah had been deprived of oxygen for long enough to cause severe developmental problems. Noah was the kindest of souls. He had lived with his parents, Nancy and George, until George passed and Nancy became too feeble. Nancy now lives with Sadie's sister Joanne, and Noah lives in what used to be Ivan's office downstairs. Noah has proved to be of great help in delivering the cakes that Sadie creates. He is strong and careful. Noah is also a charmer. He loves to stop and talk to people about anything. He had to have surgery on his arthritic knee last year. He is fully healed, but any time he sees a stranger, a tourist in town, he sees them as a potential new audience and friend and begins to bend their ear about his knee and what was done to it. Less than ten seconds into the conversation, he will pull up his pant leg to show his scar. Most people take it in stride and return his friendly banter in kind. Recently, though, one tourist got into a little spat with Noah. Noah has never understood the changing terminology. He knew when he was a boy that he was mentally retarded. He knew this meant that his brain was slower than other people and that he would never be as smart as most people. But he also knew, because his mother told him over and over, that his kindness was the gift that God meant him to share with the world and that he had more kindness than anyone she had ever known. So when Noah saw that this woman was a little uncomfortable with Noah's sudden approach and conversation, Noah tried to explain to her that he was mentally retarded so that she would be more at ease. It didn't work, though. She seemed more agitated and seemed to get angry. "'Who taught you to call yourself that?' she cried out. "'That is an awful word!' Noah was confused and wasn't sure what to do or say. When Noah was in his teens and twenties, he participated in the Special Olympics, where people would use the word handicapped. He was fine with that, but he understood the word retarded because his mother had explained it to him, 
and so it was the word he liked to use. Suddenly, there was a woman telling him that he mustn't use that word any longer, and that he mustn't say handicapped either, and that even developmentally challenged was out of favor. He should learn to say intellectually disabled, she explained. Noah was confused and a little hurt. And for the first time in his life, he turned and walked away from someone without smiling and saying goodbye. Sadie did her best to explain things to Noah and assured him that he could use any word that he wanted and that most people would still appreciate his kindness. Well, today, Noah was in charge of carrying the cake. He was so happy that Sadie trusted him with such important work. For a while, because of his wounded knee, he had had to let Ivan carry everything, but Noah felt strong now and would be proud to walk into the church with the cake. And he remembered the funny step leading up to the stage of the cultural hall. He would make sure he didn't trip on it this time. Ever since the Zarahemla Chapel was built in 1978, there has been a step leading up to the cultural hall stage that is a little taller than the other steps. Whoever put in the steps must have discovered that some settling had occurred or measurements were off, and so decided to solve the problem by adding a half inch to the top step. Many Boy Scouts over the years had tripped on it as they met on the stage for their pack meetings. Noah had tripped going into a Sunday school class. He was all right, he didn't get hurt, but from then on he made it his self-appointed duty to warn people whenever he was near the stage at church. Today, the cake and cupcakes would be arranged on the stage, so he carefully pointed out the step to Sam when she was carrying in boxes, and he would remind himself as he carried in the cake. Huck Benyon had butterflies in his stomach. He and his girls were getting ready to go to the wedding. The girls were excited to see the wedding dress and the cake, and so they were ahead of the game. Emma took charge, and after washing and brushing her own hair, helped her younger sister Rebecca to do the same. Huck was busy primping himself. He had made a batch of oatmeal for the girls, but then returned to his room and his mirror. He normally didn't care much how he looked, but today needed to be perfect. Huck had only had a few interactions with the new mayor, Merrill Hafen, and he had stuck his foot in his mouth each time. He had fantasized about a chance today to get there early and maneuver himself into selecting a seat next to her in the chapel. He wanted to create every opportunity for her to get to know him and for her to see what a good father he was. As he thought that, he realized he should stop playing with his cowlick and get back to the kitchen to help the girls fix their oatmeal and make some toast. Good fathers don't put their looks ahead of the needs of their children. He laughed at himself and went to hug his girls and see how he could help. Howard C. Howard was also nervous this morning, and not just because he was getting married and leaving his mother's house for the first time at age 34. Howard had planned a surprise for his bride, but he wasn't positive she would like it. He hoped desperately that she would, but she might get angry, and that wasn't the right way to start off a honeymoon. 
Todd Jenkins was now pulling up to the church and shepherding the kids into the chapel where they were to sit quietly in the rows he pointed out. There was no traditional dividing of the pews between the groom's side and the bride's side. Most guests were friends of both, and Rosa didn't have any family coming. At least that's what she thought. Howard had recruited Todd to help with his plan to get Rosa's sister to come to the wedding. There hadn't been any big event that caused the siblings' separation. No one particular act of betrayal or treachery had turned one sister against the other. It had just been a rivalry that never ended. Each sister seemed jealous of the other, and Rosa felt that her older sister, Mariana, had never liked her. She was just plain mean to her growing up. As adults, they saw each other at a few family events and then at the funerals that marked the end of their parents' lives. But at each event, Mariana was critical of Rosa. What she wore, how she fixed her hair, how she raised her kids. She couldn't remember a single word of praise or kindness. Rosa had always wanted her big sister to love her. Rosa liked Mariana's husband, Terence, an insurance salesman working in San Bernardino, and she adored their two children, Sebastian and Cleo, but she hadn't seen any of them for almost five years. Mariana didn't even make it to the funeral of Rosa's first husband, Tom. Sebastian had had a little league playoff game that they just couldn't miss that day, Mariana had explained. The repeated pain that this lack of relationship caused Rosa was too much during these years of huge loss and change, so she had just avoided contact. Rosa felt a little guilty for not reaching out, but she also noticed that there hadn't been any phone calls or messages from Mariana. When Rose's notebook fell out of her purse at work one day, Howard had stolen a look. He felt guilty, but thought his ends justified his means. He found the contact information for Mariana, worked up his courage, and gave her a call. A young teenage boy answered, then shouted for his mom when he learned it wasn't the girl from school he was hoping to hear from. Mariana answered with what seemed to Howard a sharp tone, but maybe he was layering his own expectations onto his senses. He explained who he was and that Rosa had agreed to marry him. Well, good luck with that, was Mariana's sarcastic reply, and the phone went dead. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea. If he did manage to get her here, having Mariana at the wedding might just add undue stress to Rosa's life. Suddenly his mobile phone rang. It was the number in San Bernardino that he had just called. Hello, he said. Terence says I was rude to you just now, came the still strident voice. Sorry, but I didn't hang up on you. My little girl tripped on the cord while I was talking to you. We are about to get rid of this house phone, so I'll have to give you my cell number. So, when is the wedding? Todd was on the lookout for Mariana and her family, who had all agreed to come. He was to try and sneak them in without Rosa noticing— but they had still not arrived, and he needed to get ready for the ceremony. He saw Huck Benyon walking into the chapel and asked if he could keep an eye out for a black Escalante with California plates and showed him where to bring the guests in and have them sit. Huck hesitated, saying, Okay, but could you save me a seat next to... Oh, never mind. I'll have my girls do it. 
He then instructed the girls to watch for Mayor Hafen and to try and pick out seats next to her. Noah and Sam approached the steps to the stage carrying the beautiful cake. The dried, multicolored roses and dried lavender forming a tasteful, spiraling and colorful trail up the steps of the cake against the off-white piping and frosting that covered layers of banana, chocolate, lemon and vanilla. Sadie looked on with trepidation. Noah, during his entire life, was painfully aware of the fears of people around him and never did anything to exacerbate those fears. But today, for the first time in Sadie's memory, he had a little of the imp in him. And when they reached the top of the step, Noah pretended to trip and let out a cry of panic. They both still had a firm grip on the cake, and Noah smiled back at Sadie and saw the look of horror on her face. He laughed out loud, and she just sighed in relief. Huck met Mariana and family and escorted them into the chapel. His girls had done it. They were seated right next to Merrill Hafen. But then his heart sank as he noticed that seated right next to Merrill was the rugged and handsome Cal Cinqua. Huck slipped in next to his girls and gave a friendly but perfunctory nod to Merrill and Cal. Rosa found herself shaking as her friend Amber, one of the waitresses at the diner and one of her maids of honor, helped her touch up her makeup and tie up her dress. What if Howard chickened out? What if she went out there and he just didn't show up? What if she didn't recognize anyone in the crowd? Oh, this was silly. She had already seen many of her friends arrive, but she couldn't help imagining the worst. It was time and a gentle knock came to the door of the classroom where her waitress friends had stationed her with table and mirror. It was Zim Cadencia. Rosa didn't really have anyone to walk her down the aisle. Zim was perhaps the kindest man she had ever known. And so one day, when he was eating at the diner, which he did three times a week now, she sat down at his table and timidly asked him if he would do her the honor. Tears came to Zim's eyes as he graciously and gratefully accepted. She saw tears in his eyes again as he told her it was time. She hugged him and hugged her maids of honor, then started the trek toward the chapel. The ceremony was simple and beautiful. Bishop Jensen offered them some counsel about patience and forgiveness, pronounced that they were wed, and told them that they could kiss and exchange rings if they would like. They did so, and then each expressed their love for each other with a short prepared speech. As Rosa was finishing her remarks about the pure unselfishness and kindness of the man she had just married, she caught a glimpse of her sister and family sitting in the audience. Rosa's breath caught short, she managed to finish her sentence and thank everyone for coming, but then looked away with tears in her eyes. Howard also thanked everyone and asked that they move into the cultural hall for refreshments and pictures. Rosa moved quickly down the aisle and into the hallway before anyone else stood. Howard feared that he had ruined everything and followed her as quickly as he could. He caught up to her and convinced her to move onto the stage for pictures with the cake. Rosa seemed in shock and wouldn't talk about it, but she did as Howard asked. 
While posing next to the cake, she saw Zim coming up the steps, leading Mariana to the stage. Zim had a paternal look on his face that said, It is time for you two to talk and to forgive. Rosa didn't know if she was ready for that and wanted to run away, but she didn't. Zim stepped aside to let Mariana walk the rest of the way to greet her sister, when suddenly Noah called out from where he was sitting at one of the tables in the cultural hall, Watch out for the top step! But it was too late. Mariana tripped, lost her balance, and fell into Howard, who in turn fell into the side of the cake. The cake didn't fall, but once again Howard found himself with a face full of a would-be dessert. Howard then, finally, did something completely impulsive. He had never even met this woman, only spoken with her on the phone, yet he picked up one of the banana cupcakes with buttercream frosting and smashed it into Mariana's face. His laugh was both a song of delight and a friendly challenge. There was a stunned moment of silence as shock spread over Mariana's face and Rose's face and the bishop's face. But then, after a moment, Mariana's son, Sebastian, broke out in a hearty laugh, as did her daughter and husband. Mariana finally cracked a smile as she tasted the frosting that was dripping from her face. Howard laughed again in relief. The whole room began to giggle and breathe. Only Rosa was still stunned and hesitant. But then her sister made a move toward her. Mariana actually smiled at her and said, Congratulations, little sister. I'm proud of you. The two sisters hugged and hugged tightly. Rosa knew this wouldn't solve all of the hurt and distrust between them but it was something to build on. And once again, the thought came to her, these Mormons solve everything with food. And that's the news from Zarahemla, where love and laughter are served at every meal, where safe sex means slipping on a wedding ring, and where everyone is a best friend.